Almost a month ago exactly, a pretty shocking report came out of the country of Kenya in Africa. And the story came from the atheist in, in Kenya society. They issued a press release on May 29th. Today is June 27th, so two days from now, it'll be exactly a month ago. Two days ago, the Atheist and Kenya Society issued a press release that stated, and I quote, this evening, regretfully, our secretary, Mr. Seth Mahiga, made a decision to resign from his position as secretary of our society. Seth's reason for resigning is that he has found Jesus Christ and is no longer interested in promoting atheism in Kenya. Praise God. The responses to Mr. Mahiga's conversion to Christ were very mixed, as you might imagine. Ranging from joyous celebration, let's kill the fatted calf and have a party from all the Christians in the land, to vitriol, rage, anger, profane things being said. See, when Jesus has mercy on a helpless sinner, you can guarantee some will rejoice and others will revolt. And our hearts are not too dissimilar from Jonah, who in the Old Testament was rebuked by God because he complained that God saved the Ninevites. And if you don't know the history of Jonah's people, and the Ninevite people, you could sum it up with what many of us are concerned about today. It was a, race, a racial issue. Jonah didn't want those people saved. So in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 4, the Lord asks him, do you have a good reason to be angry? Whose salvation would provoke a controversy inside your heart? Think of a person that deep down you may concede that it's okay if God saved them, but you just wouldn't like for them to live life with you under the blessing of Christ. What person would Christ have to demonstrate his saving kindness toward in your sphere of life to make you, like Jonah or these people in Kenya today, angry? What helpless soul would have to receive compassion from Christ for you to have reason to find a complaint against God? Turn with me to John chapter 9 for a story of complaint against Christ for his demonstration of merciful compassion upon a helpless soul. John chapter 9, it's a long passage, and today would be a good day to have your Bibles open. We'll look at a number of phrases in the verses from John chapter 9, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. It'll be projected for you if you care to follow along that way, because it's an extended reading, perhaps that would help you. Hear the word of the Lord, John 9, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. 
Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been born blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know or who opened his eyes we do not know, ask him. He is of age, he will speak for himself. Verse 22 says his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Verse 24, so a second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? So they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? So they put him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man. He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment. I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. This is God's word. Let's ask for God's blessing to help us to understand and apply it. Father, we thank you 
for your unlimited compassion in Jesus. There is no obstacle to your mercy when you intend to hunt down a human heart and bring them to your glorious Son by the power of the Spirit. There's no atheist in Kenya that you can't save. There's no pagan in Memphis you can't save. There's nobody incarcerated in the prisons of America who've committed the most heinous acts that you can't save. There's nobody in our family you can't save. There's nobody in this room you can't save. There is no obstacle to your mercy when you want to hunt down a human heart and bring them to Christ by the Spirit. So we're asking, O God, that you would cause us to see Jesus for who he is, to receive him and to do what this man did at the end of our passage, to worship Jesus. Cause us to rejoice with Christ and the angels in heaven when the compassion of the cross, when the reality of the empty tomb is injected into the lives of people around us, cause us to want to kill the fatted calf and throw a party and rejoice with all of heaven. Cause us to never be conflicted when you're kind to people around us. Cause us also, like this man, to be simple, honest, faithful ambassadors of Jesus to those around us who desperately need His mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Although we have a fairly long passage, I only have two points that I want to lay before you. The controversy over Christ's compassion and the confirmation of Christ's character. The, the first part is most of the passage takes us all the way through verse 34, 13 to 34, the controversy over Christ's compassion. And then 35 to the end, verse 41, the confirmation of Christ's character as both Savior and Judge. Under the first part, there are three ways that I want to get after it. The, the controversy over Christ's compassion, and it's just the three parts of the conversation. First, the Pharisees and the man. Second, the Pharisees and his parents. And then third, the Pharisees and the man again. The first part of that is verses 13 to 17, the Pharisees and the man. And there is a controversy not between so much the Pharisees and the man as it is among the Pharisees and themselves. Some think the others that are mentioned in this passage may be non-Pharisees, the Jews that are mentioned later, but there's an internal controversy among the religious people. Notice it in verses 13 to 17, the Pharisees' internal controversy. In verse 16, the verse ends by saying, look at it, there was a division among them. There's the controversy. Among whom? Verse 16 tells us at the beginning, the Pharisees were told in verse 16, others were saying, so the Pharisees and these others, perhaps other Pharisees, perhaps just other Jews, as verse 18 says, Jews. And, and the controversy is, is stated for us very plainly by John in verse 16. Some were saying, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Sabbath. The man is Jesus. Jesus clearly not from God because he's obviously breaking the Sabbath. Others are saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs, plural, which means they were talking about this man's physical healing from blindness to sight, but also they were aware of other things that this man named Jesus had done. 
So we can see why they were divided. But friends, we got to get into the Word until the Word gets into us. What, what I mean is, you can clearly see in verse 16 why they were divided, but you need a little bit of spiritual illumination to be able to see it's because of their presupposition. It's because of what they brought to the situation, not what they got from it. What did they bring to it? They thought they knew how God wanted people to act on the Sabbath. And they were dead wrong. They brought that to the situation and read everything through that lens. And there was no way that people as smart as them, or can I say us, could be wrong about something so obvious. They were dead wrong in their presupposition. They started with the wrong basis. They had been taught their whole life and believed their whole lives that the Sabbath was a day that man was made for. But Jesus tells us in Mark 2 that this day was made for man. It's not wrong to do good on the Sabbath. Ultimately, the Scriptures teach us that the Lord Jesus Himself, the person who performed the miracle in this passage, is our Sabbath. Matthew 11, come to me and I'll give you rest. Or Hebrews 4, Jesus is our time and eternal rest by faith. He's our true Sabbath. But these people lived in an impenetrable world of self-confident made assertions. What are you most sure you know. And has it been taught to you from the God of heaven through His Word written by the Spirit who inspired it in light of His risen Son? To question their presupposition that they were wrong about the Sabbath was unthinkable to them. It never entered their mind that they started at the wrong place. Later in the chapter, they state as an undeniable fact, we're not blind, verse 40. Now, most of you have your eyes open. Fix your eyes on me. Don't look to the right or the left. Don't say out loud, how many colors can you right now see without moving your eyes? I see blue, orange, yellow, white, brown, wood grain, light. These people don't think they're blind. It's so obvious that they can see, and it's so obvious to everybody else that they think they can see too. But Jesus is telling them, not only are you wrong about the Sabbath, you can't see anything. So the controversy was they thought Jesus broke the Sabbath, but he was the only man who was actually at rest. He was the only one in this whole situation. The parents aren't right. The Pharisees aren't right. The Jews aren't right. The man who was healed from blindness isn't even right yet. But Jesus is right. And Jesus was at rest. Augustine got it right all those centuries ago. Our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee, in God. 
until you rest your weary soul in the risen Jesus, you'll never have Sabbath. You'll never have peace. You'll never have rest. So the main point in this first consideration under Christ's controversial compassion is that Jesus is not just after the healing of a blind man physically. And he's not only after his heart spiritually, though that's certainly the case and we'll get there. Jesus is after the hearts of all the people around him. And he picked this man as a test case on a certain day, the Sabbath day, in order to do an expose of everybody's heart. The irony in the passage is that the blind man saw it while the Pharisees were totally blind to the blazing light of God in Christ who stood right in front of them. Did you catch in the passage that the blind, formerly blind man said, you want to know what a real miracle is? Did you catch it when I did the reading? You want to know what's really amazing? Here's something super miraculous. All of you think you can see, and you're totally blind. R.C. Sproul said the Pharisees had enumerated 39 specific applications of the Old Testament that they deemed to be an, a violation of the Sabbath if you did any one of those activities on the holy day. So the Old Testament never said that Jesus, Jesus didn't do anything in this passage that the Old Testament says is wrong to do on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had enumerated 39 specific applications of what they thought the Old Testament taught, and to do any one of those 39 would be a violation of the Sabbath, therefore a breaking of God's law. One of the 39 was kneading bread. Remember how Jesus healed this man? <laughs> he spit in the ground, and he made clay, and he put it in the man's eyes. They're so blind. Not only did they think he broke the Sabbath, they said in verse 16 and 24 that they believe that he's a sinner because he did good to a man on the Sabbath. So that's the first consideration over, under Christ's controversial compassion. That's this internal, verse 16, disagreement, division, verse 16 says, that arose among the spiritual people. The second part is verses 18 to 23 they're done talking to the man. They go find his mom and his dad. That's in verses 18 to 23. It's the Pharisees and the man's parents. But here's the controversy now. It's societal. It's definitely religio-societal. They lived in a religious society. People wore what they wore, talked how they talked, went where they went, did what they did because the air was very religious and everybody lived in that aquarium and they didn't even know that they were in the water because they were in the water. It's like asking a fish, what is water? You just live there. You don't, you don't know. It's the atmosphere you live in. These people lived in a very religious society. Look at these parents. They throw their son under the bus and then back up over him and then run over him again. But they do it, John tells us. John tells us their motive. He, he tells us two times. They feared the Jews. They didn't want to be put out of the holy place, the synagogue. 
Now, just skim verses 18 to 23 as I'm trying to lay out for you some of the things that we find here. John writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we find another layer of trauma in this man's life. Not only was he born blind, but we can deduce from the little bit of information we have in this passage that his pastors, they weren't a church and they weren't pastors, but it's a synagogue and religious leaders and Pharisees, neither his pastors nor his parents seemed to care anything about him. I use pastors loosely because a man obviously is not, as I mentioned, part of a church like this New Testament age, these last days in which we now live, the church age. But the Pharisees, though not technically pastors, they were definitely the religious leaders, and it doesn't appear that they cared a thing about this man. How many times have they passed him going to the synagogue? Verse 22, apparently all this has taken place right outside the synagogue, in verse 14 and 16, tell us it's happening on the Sabbath. Here's these people doing their holy duty to God. And they pass this man week after week, day after day. But, but the parents also contributed to this man's trauma. We're told that he's a beggar. And that because he's blind. And earlier in the passage, when Trey preached the opening portion to us a couple weeks ago, we we, we find that, that everybody supposes that either his parents or him had sinned and therefore he was born blind. But I want to draw just a little bit of attention to the man's relationship with his parents. We don't have a lot, but we do have some. We don't know much about the home life of this man, but we do know he's now, verse 21, of age, at least above bar mitzvah, at least above 13. He was known by his neighbors, verse 8, as a beggar. And again, we don't know much, but we do know that his parents' lives were lived near enough to this man that they just so happened to be there on the day he got healed. They probably saw him all the time. Yeah, there he goes again, out to beg. We have a small hint in the text. We don't have a lot, but it does seem plausible that his parents were not taking care of him. We know they allowed him to beg on the streets instead of providing for him themselves. I'm simply underlining this man had layers of shame layers of trauma, his infirmity of blindness, his lifelong begging, what also appears to be a tremendous lack of concern for him from any spiritual leader. All the synagogue goers, not to mention the Pharisees who led in the synagogue, all the people who passed him seemed not to care anything at all about him. Maybe he chose to sit outside the synagogue because religious people are generally a little bit more generous, so he set up station there. Or maybe he knew they were more gullible, and he could talk more of them out of their resources. We don't know his motive. We do know that his parents are nearby. The Pharisees are all over the place. They're right outside the synagogue, and it's the Sabbath, and he's a blind beggar. But John does tell us, as I mentioned earlier, this is concluding our second consideration under Christ's controversial compassion John tells us in verses 22 and 23 that when it came to his parents' motive, choosing between their son and their cultural status, or should I say cult status, they chose status over their son. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of of the Jews. That's why they said it. 
Go talk to him. We don't know. They said that because they were afraid of the Jews. What were they afraid of? Verse 22. They knew that the Jews had, quote, already agreed that if anybody confessed Jesus to be Christ, Messiah, he was, quote, to be put out of the synagogue. The worst thing that could happen to me in my little religious world is that I would be ostracized from the one place that everybody seems to find their significance and rightness with God. Verse 23, for this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Do you see it? They wanted to be seen as something in the eyes of spiritual leaders, and they would, not, they would, they would sacrifice a member of their own household to gain it or to keep it. That's why I said they backed the bus over him and ran over him again. The same is so true today. People want to be perceived or appreciated a certain way at church. We care too much about what everybody around us thinks about us. Instead of living for the audience of one, meanwhile, we come to church every Sunday and sometimes on our way to the gathering house, we mince our spouse and fillet their heart with our words and all throughout the week exasperate our children on the daily with harmful tones and words and actions. But when it comes to church, we know how to keep up appearances. Here's a lesson from this man's life. There's always a cost to identifying yourself with Jesus, always. In the absurdity of verses 17 to 23, we see the spotlights in three places on the stage. Under light number, number one, you got a man who can now see who was born blind. Under light two, you got Pharisees. And under light three, you have his parents. And instead of the parents gravitating toward their son, they go toward the religious culture or cult of their day. Just when you would expect his parents to gravitate toward him, they move away from him. I mean, think of hope deferred when and have ultrasound machines in this day. When he was born and it was discovered shortly thereafter, if not immediately, he can't see. Think of the grief in mom's heart and the challenges on the daily to try to teach their son how to use the little walking stick and how to identify objects around him and how to get from point A to point B and return back home again. He just received sight for the first time in his life. Instead of killing the fatted calf and throwing a party and rejoicing and inviting everybody to come and giving him the best tunic and celebrating with their son, they seemingly again and decisively move away from him toward protecting their own image in the religious society. And I just want to say to some of you, I don't know your stories. I don't know all of your stories. I think the more you live with the church, you should be more known. The real you needs to be really known by all the people around you in your congregation. And you need to know them and they need to know you. I don't know all your stories. I do know some of your stories. But I know that some of you, even whose stories I don't know, have been hurt by your own family. And for a long time. Some of you, like this man, have a long, sad story of trauma from your childhood that marks you to this day. You act the way you act and do what you do and pursue what you pursue because you're trying to compensate for some kind of wound that's deep. Father hunger and all other kind of pain, sins against you that are not your fault. 
Some of you have been the last pick in the game of life when your parents had to choose between you and their own selfish desires like this man. Some of you, like this man, have been left to fend for yourself instead of being nurtured and loved, cared for, provided for by your parents. They have sent you out to the curb and say, figure it out yourself. And like this man, some of you have had the deep pain. It's inexplicable. You can't even articulate it. There are no words in our vocabulary to adequately describe it. Some of you have had the deep pain of your parents trying to look spiritual at church while they kick you in the gut at home. Spouse, children, friends, if that's you, I have really, really good news for you today. When nobody else will speak for you, nobody else will take sides with you, nobody else wants to identify themselves with you and associate themselves with you, and you feel all alone in the middle of a crowded place. Have you ever heard people talk like that? They feel all alone in a crowded room. That's this man. Then and there and always, the Lord Jesus is delighted to link himself with you. To have him is better than to have houses or lands or to be the king of a vast domain. Parents or siblings or anything else. Social approval, spiritual applause in the eyes of man. All combined, don't compare to the joyful gaze of Christ on your life. So this man's parents were fearful of the Pharisees and didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. De-synagogue, apo-synagogue, like kicked out of the synagogue. They didn't want that. So they chose that over their son. The third part of Christ's controversial compassion, they talked to the man again. This is where things get real. Verses 24 to 34, it's the Pharisees. They're now at the parents' advice saying, go ask him. He's of age. He'll tell you what happened. So they do it. But here you find something that's not so controversial. This man, the Pharisees are embroiled in controversy. The parents have some controversy. This man is gloriously free from controversy. Gloriously free. There's only one person other than Jesus in this passage who doesn't seem to have any controversy. It's the formerly blind man. Verses 24 to 34, he was single-hearted. Blessed are the pure in heart. That doesn't mean you never sin. It means you have one gigantic aim in your life. You're single-hearted, one-hearted, pure-hearted. You're not divided. This man is not duplicitous in his heart. He's single-hearted. When the Lord Jesus opened his eyes, the Lord also stole this man's heart. To use theological categories, I believe that this man was experiencing the effectual call of God, the glorious drawing power of irresistible grace. For what it's worth, I don't think he's a Christian yet. Jesus was not interested in putting some springs on this man's wagon to give him a more comfortable ride on his way to hell. He didn't just want to physically heal him and leave him to perish eternally. Jesus healed the man's eyes as a prelude. Jesus healed the man's eyes as a prelude to healing the man's soul. 
This man would not be content to have physical sight without having something vastly more important, spiritual sight. You've heard the phrase before, maybe, the beatific vision. This man was about to have his own beatific vision. That is, the self-communication of God to an individual soul. That's a be- when Matt said at the beginning, oh, how we pray that you would see the glory and grace of Christ. Once you see Him, you can't unsee Him. Once the door of heaven, Leonard Ravenhill, has been cracked one inch and you're able to look inside, you never turn around. This man now could physically see the world, but he was not totally healed in this passage until he could see Jesus with saving faith. After this man was healed of his blindness, he didn't have his parents' controversy, fear of being put out of the synagogue. He didn't want to just have an appearance of godliness without its power. That meant nothing to this man. He had tasted spiritual power. He knew that the Pharisees and the synagogue goers totally lacked spiritual power. He did not have the Pharisees' controversy, doubting that Jesus had the authority to do good to anyone, anytime, anywhere. He didn't want to be relegated. They wanted to relegate Jesus to being a sinner who did not know God. But the man knew better because he had experienced the power of Christ for himself. And I'm wondering if you have. Now, to be sure, it doesn't look like the man has very much when he makes it to verse 34. I mean, he can see, and that's wonderful. But his parents have chosen selfish status in a synagogue over him. The Pharisees, in verse 34, put him out of the synagogue. Parents feared that. He experienced that. He didn't have a spiritual home, spiritual leaders, or spiritual parents. He's by himself with his eyesight. But look at his testimony. This is so beautiful. Verses 24 and 25. The Pharisees try to get the seeing man to call Jesus a sinner, but the man refuses and instead he says, I don't know if he's a sinner, but I know this. I've never been able to see with my physical eyes before, and now I can see. Just like you looked at me, and you saw five, seven, ten, twelve colors just with one gaze straight ahead. As a result, this man is happy to identify himself with Jesus as one of his disciples. Look at it in verse 27. It's a sarcastic ask to the Pharisees. You don't want to become one of his disciples too, do you? I'm his disciple. I'm glad to be his disciple. In my understanding of the text, the man knows two things at this point. He knows he can see because Jesus made it happen, and he's thrilled to be one of Jesus' disciples, one of his followers. But by the time you make it to verses 29 to 33, things escalate quickly. That's why I said a moment ago, things get real. And they escalate quickly in his testimony concerning Christ. In summary, the healed man declared to the Pharisees, that he believed that the same God who listened to Moses listens to Jesus. They say, hey, we're Moses' disciple. We don't know about this guy. We don't know where he's from. He says, that's amazing. That's a, that's a real miracle. That's a bigger miracle than him giving me physical eyesight. Because this man says, God listens to Jesus, verse 29 to 31. Jesus is not a sinner, verse 31. He does God's will. You could render it, he worships God, verse 31. And he came from God, verse 33. 
That's his testimony about Jesus. Instead of engaging with this man's rock-solid Christology, they resort to the old character assassination game. They don't like what he says, so forget engaging with the argument. Assassinate the person. You were born entirely in sins, verse 34. Are you teaching us? Get out. They put him out. So they go back to the earlier question at the beginning of the chapter. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And they give their answer right here. The whole reason you were born the way you were born is because your mom's probably a loose woman and there was something wrong with you before you ever came out of the womb. You're born in sin. There's a lesson here, isn't there? Better to be experientially acquainted with Jesus. Better to receive the touch of the power of Christ and shamelessly identify yourself with him than to have the approval of man. It sounds to me in verses uh, 24 to 34 that this man sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1. For am I now seeking, Paul wrote, the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This man is unashamed of Christ. No controversy in his heart. Simple, clear, to the point. Which leads to the last part of the passage. And I believe it's where we see this man born again. Saved. He can physically see, but he's still spiritually lost. Like all the people in the entire chapter. Verse 35 to 41. This is the confirmation of Christ's character. We've seen his controversial compassion. But who, who is he? Who, who do you say he is? We get no hint in this passage that the man born blind who was miraculously healed by Jesus had any conflict in his heart about Christ. He had a growing understanding. This is a beautiful progression in this passage. That's why I called it the effectual call, the draw of irresistible grace. In verse 11, he says, uh, the man they called Jesus, that's who healed me. That's his first testimony. It was the guy who they call Jesus. He's the one who spit on the ground and put it in my eyes and told me to wash. In verse 17, he's a prophet. In verse 25, uh, if he's a sinner, I don't know. I do know this. I was blind and I can see now. You see the progression? Verse 27, I told you already and you don't want to listen. You want to become his disciples too? So we went from a guy called Jesus to a prophet to a, he's not a sinner, he he healed me. And I'm his disciple. Verse 30, this is an amazing thing. Here's the real miracle. You don't know where he's from, but he opened my eyes. But the decisive moment in this man's progression had not yet happened. You can't be vaguely acquainted with Jesus and go to heaven when you die. The man called Jesus, verse 11. You can't say true things about Jesus and affirm them deep in your bones and go to heaven when you die. He's a prophet. You can't utter Christological truth that came down through the ages and is codified in every creed and confession of the Christian faith. He has no sin, verse 25. You can't even experience His incredible common grace mercies 
I've heard people in this community say, I know I'm going to heaven when I die because I didn't die in that car wreck. Common grace, maybe angelic protection. This man says in verse 27, I'm his disciple, and in verse 30, he opened my eyes. You may experience incredible intervention of supernatural mercy in your life, but you can have all that and be headed to hell. The decisive moment in this man's life was not in verses 6 and 7. When Jesus sped on the ground, made clay of the spittle, applied the clay to his eyes, told him to go wash in the pool, which is translated sent, and he went away and washed and came back saying, that's not the decisive moment. That was the prelude to the decisive moment in this man's life. That was the wooing work of Jesus. That was the hook that drew the man to be justified by the saving power of Christ. The decisive moment is verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they put him out. Did you see in verse 13? They brought the man to the Pharisees. This guy's been healed. (laughs) What do y'all say about that? But here, Jesus is seeking the man out. Why? We're told in verse 35 why Jesus came after him. Because he heard that they put him out of the synagogue. Oh, you mean all the religious people have rejected you? Where is he at? Jesus hunted this man down. He found him in the middle of the crowded throngs of people. And look what Jesus said. Matt emphasized it earlier in the, ser- in the service. Verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? And just as Matt said at the beginning of the service, I say to you right now, Jesus waits for your answer. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him. What a statement. You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You see, in verse 7, this same man had saliva dripping mud all over his face. In verse 7, this same man took his little blind man's stick and made his way to the pool of Siloam. He he knelt over the edge of of the the barrier around that pool and, and he rinsed out his face. Can you imagine it? Maybe the first thing he saw was his own reflection in that pool. And as he saw his own face, he thought, I don't look anything like I thought I looked. I mean, not, not, to, not to be too, uh, you know, in the, in the dirt about it, but the man literally had dirt on his face and, and he saw that. Maybe he just saw obvious things like, my, my socks don't match. Maybe he was awestruck as he looked up or looked down and saw the reflection of the sky in the pool and the, and the depth of the blue of the sky just took his breath away for a moment. Oh, that's blue? And that's orange? I thought, that was blue. And that was orange. And he's processing at lightning speed faster than he can even get his thoughts together. And he's looking around and he sees the shades of green and the ripple in the marble of the synagogue, and the colors of the 
dirty pavement beneath his feet. He looks around and there's synagogue goers all over the place and there's the Pharisees wearing their coats of many colors and he sees their draped tassels and the different colors of their sashes. Maybe he looked in the reflection in the pool and said, I mean, you need a haircut. You're a mess. Why, why didn't you guys tell me I look so disheveled? From verse 7 to verse 36, we can't imagine what this man is experiencing. Taking in the wonderful kaleidoscope of colors in God's wonderful world for the first time, it had to be sensory overload, but it was not until verse 37 that this man saw the most beautiful sight in the universe. Let your heart linger on verses 35 to 38. It tells us so much in such a little space. Jesus heard they put him out. Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe? Jesus said, you have seen him. And he's the one talking with you. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Wouldn't you love to have a YouTube clip of verse 38? Play that thing on repeat. What did that scene look like? What did this man's Jesus-centered worship sound like? He had just been excommunicated from the synagogue. They're right outside its doors, but the real worship, verse 38 says, is happening out here, not in there. This man is joining the angels and all the redeemed from human history in Christocentric praise. He worshiped him. Was it a song? That's why I wish I had a YouTube clip. I can't wait to find this man in heaven. Did he fall on his knees? Did he skip and jump? And proclaim the truth of Christ like the man in Acts chapter 4 who's dancing all over the synagogue when he's healed by Peter and John. Did he just stare at Jesus with his new physical eyesight in stunned, worshiping silence with his new gift of seeing? And was his breath taken away like the queen of Sheba before Solomon as he beheld his redeemer face to face? Was he soaking in the realities in his Christ-centered worship that the very God who formed his eyeballs in his mother's womb and prevented them from working until this day, was he soaking in the realities that the God who made him is the same one who sped on the ground and put mud in his face and now he's standing in front of both his creator and his redeemer. United in one person, I'd like to think that he rehearsed the lines that Jesus gave in response to the disciples' question in verse two. Why was he born blind, Jesus? Was it his parents' sin or was it his own sin? They didn't have a third category. But I'd like to think here we are in verse 38 and he's worshiping Jesus. And he says, verse 2, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but so that the works, plural, the works of God could be displayed in him. Little work, physical sight. 
gargantuan work, spiritual sight. This man was a, acquainted with the God who had made him, and now he is worshiping the only one who could save him. We know that he knows something about the Scriptures. Verse 31, he knows that God doesn't hear sinners. That's a promise from the Old Testament. He probably had heard outside the synagogue because they would play it loud and clear through the windows of those open-air synagogues. They didn't have windows like we have. They'd let the breeze come through, and he would sit outside and beg. And there's no doubt that he heard from Isaiah 26 and 41 and plenty of other passages that when the Messiah comes, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. He was acquainted with the Old Testament. He knew what the Pharisees were talking about in verse 29 when they boasted of being Moses' disciples. So this man's worship of Jesus is including his awareness that this is the one not only who made him and physically healed him, but he's the same one of Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah who's going to bear my sins in his body on the tree who's going to become sin in my place, who's going to take the guilt of all my crimes against God upon himself, and the Lord is going to lay on him my iniquity, and he's going to be crushed under the weight of God's just judgment for my sins, not his own. And he's going to see, Isaiah 53, the reward of his suffering, and he's going to be glad Though he's counted with these pagans in his burial, he's going to rise again and conquer death forever. And when this man is worshiping Jesus, I believe John includes this passage in this gospel because of what he wrote at the end of it. John chapter 21, uh, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. I've written all these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing you will have life in his name. That's why this passage is here. Friends, I close this way. It's really littered our whole service today. As we sang Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. We hear this man's testimony. One thing I know, I was blind and now I can see. This man's simple testimony that Jesus is the one who had mercy on him until we find him confessing, you're the son of man, you are Lord, and he is worshiping Jesus as his redeemer. Friends, unless you turn to Jesus, unless you embrace him as your Lord, your Savior, you will remain in your sins. Remember our Kenyan brother who turned from atheism to Christ and like this man, maligned and called a fool and all sorts of other foul things, he will eventually, before the entire universe, be proven to be the one who sees clearly, while all who deny Christ will be proven to be blind. Notice that Jesus doesn't let anybody off the hook here. The way our passage ends in verses 39 to 41 is Jesus effectively telling all the people around that they are the blind ones. But he doesn't give them an excuse. It's not an excuse for your damnation. 
Because you say you see. You got so much spiritual light. You have so much access to the truth. You think you're Moses' disciple. You go to the synagogue constantly. You've earned the rank of Pharisee. You've studied the scriptures your whole life. You should know better when the Savior stands right in front of you. But we see in verse 41... Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. The, the point is, is clear. Unless you come to Christ for spiritual sight, unless you turn to Jesus who took your sin, died in your place, rose again to make you right with God so that you could have spiritual life. John said that's why he wrote the gospel. Unless you come to Christ that way like this man, no matter who else comes with you, unless you come to him yourself, verse 41, your sin remains. Friends, there is a gift that is beyond my ability to say. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3. The knowledge of sins forgiven. Do you have that? Do you have what Christian Pilgrim's Progress experienced when he finally got under the cross? Do you have the burden of your sin rolled away? Do you know that your sin has not been swept under the rug, but it's been nailed to the cross in the person of Christ? Until you see God in Christ, you've never seen God, John 1.18. Until you come to God in Christ, you've never come to God, John 14.6. Until you taste God in Christ, you've never had your spiritual thirst quenched. John 7, 37. Until you look upon God in Christ, you have no spiritual light. Verse 41. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So, are you someone upon whom Christ has had compassion? And if so, has it led you like this man to verse 38 him, to worship him. Let's do that now after I pray as we sing nothing but the blood. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the multiplied testimonies in this room like this man. We don't know much, but we know this. We were blind and now we can see and Jesus is the one who did it. We don't know a lot, but we know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Son of Man. Thank you for the multiplied testimonies in this room, but thank you for the testimony. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the good news, the gospel that Christ, the light of the world, came into a world of total sin-ridden darkness. Everybody blind. Everybody dead. Nobody right with God. And He came, your word says, to seek and save the lost. Thank you for Jesus. Cause us to worship him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.